keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 490 of the Survival Podcast. It is August 11th, 2010. It is a Wednesday. And uh, I think we had a great show yesterday. I had a lot of great feedback on it. And... You know, sometimes we do have to delve into the darker areas, and we're going to do that not as much today, but a little bit. We're going to talk today about, let's say there is a major breakdown, whether it's regional or if it's, uh, even if it's localized, but it's a major disaster for your localized area, or national or global in scope. The, uh, the big stuff, the stuff we see in Hollywood, something like that. We generally prepare in order of probability. That means that we start out preparing for things that are mundane, like losing our job or having our house destroyed by a tree uh, or a tornadic event or a hurricane or things like that. But we also have to accept the fact that there are very dangerous things out there that could completely destabilize society, and that is an eventuality that we could deal with someday. Is it the most probable? No. But to deny it is it's either a mixture of ignorance and arrogance uh, or it's something called normalcy bias, which we'll be talking about a little bit today as well. There is always the potential for life to be derailed. And there's been major extinctions throughout the history of the planet. Uh, and to think that we're immune from that, that is arrogance. So we need to understand that there are biological things at play. And that there is a thin line in society that separates chaos from order. And if that line crumbles, uh, at least for a time... All the rules change. And we're going to talk today about using local resources and using specialized knowledge of local resources to better get through a situation. So before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is one of our newest sponsors. We don't have new sponsors often because, well, let's face it, once a sponsor comes here, you guys generally uh, treat them well and they don't want to leave. Uh, but our new sponsor is called KnifeKits.com. Been around with us for about a month now. Um, and I'll tell you what, they offer really high-quality kits for building your own knives and blades and handle material and all that other good stuff. And I know there's a lot of blade crafters out there, so check out KnifeKits.com. Remember, you can best find them by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on their banner in our right-hand margin. Next up today is Safe Castle Royal, uh, located at Prepared.pro. Um, you really need to check out Safe Castle if you haven't already. They have an extreme assortment of uh, items for prepping, including a really good special right now going on for large quantities of uh, storable food that you might want to check into. Uh, they're also a very good friend of the show. They've been with us. I mean, they're one of the first sponsors that actually signed on as a sponsor. They were definitely one of the first, if not the first sponsor that signed up for a full year and said, we'll, we'll back this enterprise even though it's very new and very young, way, way back when there was only about 4,000 of you guys listening versus the 14 to 15,000 downloads a day we get now. And they did something else. We have a, uh, 
a program called the Members Brigade where you join uh, and you support the show at $50 a year. And you get a lot of discounts uh, to vendors. You get a bunch of other stuff. I won't even talk about it much today. What I want you to know about SafeCastle is they have their own discount uh, buyers club. It's $29 one time, and you get discounts with them forever. It's a lifetime membership for $29. Great deal. Well, guess what? You join our members brigade, and Vic over there, Vic Rontala, who runs that place, gives that to you 100% for free, effectively meaning that your first year of MSB costs you what? $21. bucks. Plus all the other discounts and everything else. So consider joining the MSB today and definitely consider supporting Vic because he's done a lot to help support the show. Uh, remember to get involved with us on all our social media outlets. I would say this again. Folks, if you have a Facebook account and you have not looked up the Survival Podcast and clicked the like button, please do that for me. Brian Black at ITS got me into this bet. I'm not even sure exactly how I was finagled into this now. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'm not going to lose. And we gained over a hundred and uh, 160 positions on him between Monday and Tuesday until this morning. 160 gained. Right? He didn't quit either. That's we had to do a lot more than 160 to gain on him because he's in the lead. He started out in the lead. Um, so I need to keep that going. And all you have to do is go to Facebook in the search box, type in the Survival Podcast and look up the Survival Podcast page, and up at the top, click on Like, and you'll get updates from me on your uh, on your newsfeed after that. Please do that for me, and please tell your friends about the Survival Podcast. There's a little link there that says Recommend to a Friend, or Suggest to a Friend. Why don't you ask a few of your friends to follow my page? Easy way to spread the Survival Podcast message. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, you know... This is something else that, you know, I don't want to belabor the colony. I don't want to beat the people up on the colony too much. But I watched episode three last night, even though I'd already planned to do the show, and it, it gave me some new... I don't want to really talk too much about the colony today, but I, I will refer to it a little bit here. And um, one of the things that I realized that's a challenge for these people on the show this year is they have very little knowledge, um, period about how to survive. They all have something called specialized knowledge, and but they don't really have specialized knowledge in the survival world. So we have auto mechanic there, and there's definitely, she's uh, extremely valuable to the group. Uh, there's an artist and inventor guy there that I was wondering when he was going to pay off, and he seems to be paying off in episode three a little bit. And there's a model on the show, and I don't know what the hell that girl brings to the table. I think they put her there because she doesn't bring anything to see what would happen, because um, she doesn't have any knowledge of anything. But what I've noticed so far, this is just kind of a segue into the, the three types of knowledge that, that apply to survivalism um, and, and kind of a way to understand it and make it more material, is that these people just don't get it. And I don't want anybody in this audience to not get it if you ever in a situation where you need to get it. And what I mean by that is, in the first episode, they found a snake, and it was in their house. And they were shocked that there was a snake in their house. Well, it was a freaking burnout house, and that's where snakes go. And it was actually just a, a plain Jane water snake, and they were worried it was deadly. And they were afraid of it, and they beat it to death. And then they discarded it. Guess what they were doing in episode two? Sending guys out to the bayou to find anything to eat, and he brought back and they ate two snakes. So they went from one day discarding valuable resource to the next day figuring, hey, maybe we need to eat this. And that is straight up a lack of knowledge and a, a, a an encroachment 
of normalcy bias. That's the only way that I can describe it. It's that people are trying to hold on to the normal, and for some people it's not normal to eat a snake. But let's talk about the three types of survival knowledge. And I think you could almost call these the three types of knowledge that there are, but definitely for survival knowledge. And I didn't get this from anybody, so somebody might be like, there's a fourth type of knowledge, and maybe there is, but in my analysis of, of all the survival situations that I've looked at and and all the scenarios that I've run through my head and all of the the actual events that have occurred that I've researched, there's really three types of knowledge when it comes to being a survival-minded individual. And those are general localized and specialized. And you might think localized and specialized may be the same thing, but they're not. Let's start out with what general knowledge is as it pertains to survival. I mean, general knowledge in the everyday world is what we would refer to as common sense. If you put your hand on a piece of metal that was sitting in the sun, you'll get burned. Look both ways before you cross the street. Whether I'm in uh, Europe or America or Australia or Brazil, those two pieces of general knowledge apply. If I don't look both ways before I cross the street, I'm just as likely to be run over in Brazil as I am in New York City. All right? I mean, it's just common knowledge. With survivalism, it starts to move into the world of specialized, but it's, it's, it's still common. In other words, it applies everywhere. So when I look at a survival situation and it's cold outside, there's certain general principles about how I can stay warm. You know, I cannot lay on the cold ground and make sure that I put some type of insulation between me and the cold ground so that the ground doesn't pull the heat out of my body. I can insulate and cover my body to contain my naturally occurring body heat. If I'm in a daytime situation, I can move to the sunny side of a hill and make my camp around rocks so that the rocks create radiant heat. If, I, uh, if I'm smart and I, I want to stay warm, I don't make my camp down in a valley near a body of water because it's obvious that cool air is going to fall and that there could be a tremendous difference in temperature in a valley and higher up on a higher piece of ground and with that water is going to be even cooler. Conversely, right? if, I need, if it's hot and I need to stay cool, getting down in that lower ground near that water and out of the sun is exactly what I need to do. That's general survival knowledge because it applies everywhere. No matter where I take you from Antarctica uh, to the Sahara Desert, those principles apply. That's general knowledge. Localized knowledge is specific to an area. Localized knowledge is there are plants that grow in Texas that do not grow in Pennsylvania. And if you know what to look for here, you can find and use those plants as a resource for food. If you only know those plants and you're dropped off in Pennsylvania or Canada or Australia, and that localized knowledge now becomes somewhat useless. I say somewhat because often, let's put it this way, um, if the knowledge is that acorns can be used as food, I can take you to China and you can find a version of the oak tree in China, and there's enough similarity between the two that you can use that localized knowledge elsewhere. But it's not the same as general knowledge. It does not always apply, depending on where you go. Knowing the edible plants in uh, the northeastern United States won't do you much good in the Arizona desert. And conversely, 
the knowing the edible plants in the Arizona desert won't do you much good in New England, right? Now, the other side of that is that there's an advantage with localized knowledge if it's where you live and where you exist. Because you cannot just learn the things that are there, but you can learn where they are. And that's what I want to talk to you a lot about today, learning where they are, how to get to them, and how to use them. But before we talk about that, we have to talk about the third type of survival knowledge, and that's specialized. Specialized knowledge is what I call skill-based knowledge. And that could be like we were talking about from these folks from the colony. We have a guy there that's an artist and inventor. Well, he knows how to make a forge. And he can use a forge to make a weapon or a tool. He made a machete last night, which is probably a very useful tool for these people to have since they didn't have one until he made one. So that's a specialized piece of knowledge. Now, did he have a specialized knowledge for the purpose of survival? No, but he was able to adapt that specialized knowledge into a survival situation. There's a lot of overlap between these types of knowledge. It's not as clear. Yesterday we talked about the different methods of attack mitigation. It's pretty clear the difference between termination on an attacker, which means killing them, uh, and impeding an attacker, which means slowing them down. There's a very clear point where those two uh, split away from each other. When it comes to something like knowledge, there's a lot more overlap. It's not as clean. So another type of skill-based specialized knowledge might be fire-making. Now, fire-making is general knowledge. It's also specialized, and here's how the, the two split. And it actually is important. This is not going into minutia for the sake of minutia. There are ways to make fire with, let's say, a bow drill, let's say a hand drill, let's say using uh, a, a lens, let's say using a fire-starting implement, let's say using electrical current, whether it's something using a cell phone battery or jumper cables from a car. There's all these different ways to make fire, and there's... It's a very general skill. And if you can come up with what you need, you can do it anywhere in the world. Whether you're in Australia, Africa, or North America, if you can find a good dry baseboard, and you can find you know material to make the bow, something for quarters to make the string, something for the baseboard, and a spindle, and it's dry material, even if you don't have a lot of knowledge about what the material actually is, you can use the generalized knowledge of how friction fire is created and use a bow drill or a more simple method but a little bit harder to do, a hand drill to make fire. But there are people who have specialized knowledge of those techniques that is gained through repetition. So I can know how to make a bow drill. I can not only know but have made one in the past. I can have made several and I can get it done to the best of my ability. But there are people that are experts. You know, we look at Dual Survivor and a guy like Cody Lundin. Dave Canterbury was on the show, and he said himself, even though he's very familiar with these skills, when it comes to making primitive fire in an aboriginal-type way, Cody Lundin is a master. He has a specialized knowledge of a general skill set. And those three types of knowledge, localized, general, and specialized, are important because if we're in a survival situation, what we want to do is a couple things. We want to do a personal assessment. What is my general, local, and specialized knowledge, and how does it apply to the situation? But in a leadership role, which we're going to talk about today as well, and leadership doesn't always mean you're the commander of a group. It doesn't mean you're in charge. Leadership has a revolving effect at times. 
And again, we'll talk more about that. But one of the things a leader has to be able to do is take an assessment of their team. That's another thing I haven't seen on this show yet is somebody sit down and let's say, what can everybody do well? What can everybody do excellent? And what can everybody do in general? And how do we allocate the skills so we're getting the most bang for our buck, so to speak? So the importance of identifying these knowledge types are so that we can assess our own ability and assess the, the ability of others that are there to help us and make sure that everybody is utilized to the full extent of their abilities and that knowledge can be transferred. Because that is a force multiplier. If I have a specialized knowledge in how to make traps, right? I don't have a general knowledge. I have a specialized knowledge. I've been making figure four since I'm 14 years old. And I know how to build a figure four. And I can do it. And I don't just know how to do it. And I've not just done it a few times. I can go out and I can set them quickly and efficiently. And I know where. And I know how to identify a game trail. And I'm familiar with funneling. And funneling, folks, is creating an environment where your prey has to take a certain path into the trap. So that you're more likely, when the trap falls, to actually execute and uh, take the prey. And I have that knowledge. It's great that I'm the trapper. And I should be out setting traps right away if food is in short supply, as long as security has been seen to. But as soon as I get any kind of a modicum of food coming out of there, what I need to be doing is finding somebody else that has enough general knowledge that they make a prime pupil. And I need to be teaching them. And by the time they have become somewhat specialized in the ability, we need to both be teaching somebody. Right, And at that point, we end up with four people that are relatively good trappers out of a group that might only have four people in it. Maybe that's ten. I mean, it doesn't matter. But what happens is you get us into a situation where if I'm the trapper, you don't become dependent upon me. Because what if I'm out trapping and I get killed or I get injured and I can't go trap anymore? Without identifying these knowledges and determining who has them and assessing them, We don't get that knowledge transfer down. And we don't get leadership. Leadership comes from people understanding the value of everybody else around them. And it doesn't matter whether you're leading or following. If you don't have an appreciation for each other's, uh, let's say, mental assets, then leadership doesn't work. It just doesn't. Because you could be a great leader, but if people don't think you're competent, they don't want to follow you. You can be a great leader, but if you don't have confidence in the people you're leading, you don't feel that you'll be able to get people through something and get the job done. And as people that are part of a group where leadership is often handed off, so this is another thing that goes down to understanding specialized knowledge. If we had a group of people together and we decided that we needed to, oh, I don't know, let's say we needed to get something uh, built with a forge, right? And somebody was there and said, hey, I know how to build a forge. I don't know how to build a forge, folks. I, I have the general knowledge of how a forge works. But the person with specialized knowledge is going to be the leader for that project, even if I or somebody else is the overall leader within the group or sharing that responsibility with maybe two people uh, of leadership. All right. So those skills need to be, again, understood for this concept to work. It won't create the unity in the team without a mutual respect and a mutual value. So it's probably one of the first things that need to be done in a survival situation uh, involving more than one person is a group skills assessment and a group knowledge assessment. And, and then what needs to happen is the entire group needs to basically do a knowledge jump dump of localized knowledge. 
What is available around here? How far are things away? We'll get into that next. One of the biggest things that you can do for yourself right now, this minute, maybe not this minute, but soon, is to start identifying edible plants and edible substances around your area, whether they be plant or animal-based. To not just know what's available, to not just know, okay, well, lamb's quarters grow in my area. Well, lamb's quarters grow in over half of the United States. Are there any in your area? If so, where are they? When are they available? You know, what times of the year are they, ava- are they available? Where can you find them? Are you sure those are lamb's quarters? Have you positively identified them? And any other plant you have to take the same approach with. I would tell you that I think you need to find at least 10 edible species in your general area. And you need to do it now in what we would call peacetime. Because if, God forbid, we ever have to go to the point of relying on foraging for food, you need to know where they're at. See, here's the thing, and I've said this too, and this is true, that during a major crisis, that the resources that are available are going to come under tremendous amounts of pressure and quickly dry up and no longer be available. There's some real truth to that, unless the disaster is something that really eliminates a large portion of the population. So if we did have a big pandemic and a lot of people died off, obviously the people that died aren't competing for the resources. But in most instances, yes, resources will be quickly grabbed up and dry up. But there's also an old adage, and you've probably heard it before. The early bird gets the worm. The person that knows where the items are and can go procure them at the onset of the disaster and still, until, until waiting until the acute stage is raging and the shortages are in massive numbers, that person is able to stockpile available resources, protect available resources, identify additional resources, and here's the big thing, conserve stored resources. If I think I'm going to be long-term without food, once I see to my security, if I can find food through foraging, hunting, trapping, whatever, that food is going to be consumed long before the food that I've stored. Because the food that I have stored, I know is long-term storable items. It's like my money in the bank. I'll bring it out, I'll use it, but only when I have to. It's for the acute stage of the emergency. As long as I can forage and live off the land, I'm going to do that for as long as I possibly can, whether it's one day or 100 days. And each disaster and each situation is going to change what that number is. In some scenarios and in some areas, you may be able to live almost 100% off the land if you know what you're doing. It's probably not a good idea. That's why we store additional resources for both our use and for barter in a situation. But the more we can get from what's around us, the longer we make whatever we have last. So, again, one of the big things is finding edible plants. And, you know, a good idea is to go get a good book that covers wildlife and plant life in your area, and just start learning. Just take walks. You'd be surprised at what you'd find in parks. I can tell you five city parks around here with pecan trees in it. And that only does you good during a time of year that the pecans are on and falling. But if it happens to be that time of year, I know where they are, how far away they are, how to get to them. And I know which ones actually produce really good pecans and which ones produce little crappy pecans. Now, I might even want the little crappy pecans in a bad enough situation. But where am I going to go first? See, that's the other thing. It's not just about finding some things. It's about finding as much as you can and prioritizing based on the time of the year 
and the quality and quantity of what's available based on your risk of how hard it's going to be to get there and reclaim and get home with what you're, what you're carrying with you. There are so many edible things out there. And obviously if we're growing some of our own, that helps with the situation. We also have to think about the fact that we may have to preserve food without refrigeration. Okay? Without electricity. And how we're going to do that. And we might say, well, I've got all these canned goods, I've got all this mountain house stuff, I've got some MREs, I've got dried beans, I've got dry rice, I've got all this stuff stored up. Fine, what about when you get lucky and go out there and you do kill a deer or a wild pig or uh, maybe you set some traps and you don't come back with uh, one or two little chipmunks, you come back with four or five possums. That's actually, you'd think, well, I don't want to eat a possum. You might, in the right situation. That's quite a bit of meat. How do you preserve The, the meat, when it comes to harvesting uh, vegetables and anything else that you can use to get calories from, how do you preserve them? Well, the, the, probably the, the two best methods of preserving food when you're without refrigeration that are readily available by using what? General knowledge. A little bit of localized, but mostly general knowledge are simply drying or dehydration and smoking. Now, the smoking actually requires a little bit of knowledge because there's certain woods you really don't want to smoke meat with. You definitely don't want to use cedar fence material to smoke meat, which I think is what those idiots were doing on the colony last night. Maybe they were using pine. And you don't want to build your, your firebox out of wood, which they also did. And again, I don't want to digress too much onto the colony, but they build a smokehouse, and the the part that the, the the food would hang in to be smoked was actually made out of plywood, and that's reasonable to do. But there's enough metal around the area; they should have built a firebox out of metal. They built a pit and put a wood box over the pit for a firebox. Not real smart. Not real smart at all. And there's better ways to do that. Dig all you know, here, here, folks. You want to know how you build uh, a smoker? In a situation where your resources are extremely limited and you don't have uh, any wood at all, really, uh, or any metal at all, or very small amounts of what you could you could use as metal, you dig a hole in the ground, and then you dig a trench from the top of that hole to over where you're going to set your smoker, and then you get whatever metal you can uh, to cover the hole and leave some airflow for it. You you create another hole down into that hole, a small hole, kind of like a like a little gopher tunnel from the side with the, that's the windward side, and uh, then you cover up the trench, and that can be covered up with debris because it's not directly exposed to the flame, and you force the smoke through that tunnel into your chamber. And you can do it with mostly using the ground as a construction method. What is that? That is specialized knowledge. The general knowledge is I can smoke meat. The specialized knowledge is how do I get that done with extremely limited resources that's that's a huge thing um, you also really need to focus on something else and that's knowing where water is and where water is available including nasty water that you don't think you would use because you might um, most water can be made drinkable if you store the right equipment for making it drinkable uh, boiling will kill most things uh, that can actually do you harm Basic filtering will do a lot before boiling. So that, and, and a lot of times you can filter water just enough so that it can be used for cleaning, even though you wouldn't consume it. It would be fine for bathing. Um, water is the most precious resource that we have. It's uh, it, You can go a week without food. You, it'll suck, 
but you'll probably live unless you have some kind of underlying medical condition. Um, you know, a diabetic would really suffer in that situation without being able to eat at all. Um, but you could probably you can probably make it a week without food, and people have made it a month without food on hunger strikes. Um, water, if you go 48 hours with water, you're probably freaking dead. I mean, it's almost impossible to go much longer than that. You have to understand that your blood is mostly water. As you dehydrate, your blood actually thickens. That's not a urban legend, folks. That's the way it works. As, as you have less and less water to run your body, every fluid in your body becomes thicker, and that means it runs with less efficiency, and it does less to deliver uh, oxygen, in the case of blood, and remove CO2. Your body actually begins to poison itself without water. And, and that's why water is so important. So you have got to establish an understanding of the water resources that are around you. Uh, so that even if you have water that you don't really even want to use for drinking water, and you have water that makes decent drinking water, that drinking water can be used just for drinking. And that other water, as unappealing as it may be, can be used for things like bathing or washing things. Now, let, let me explain something. You can't use you know, infected water you know, backed up sewage to take a shower in. But there's a lot of water that's out there that's in our creeks and our streams and our ponds that can be used, especially with a, just a, a basic filtration. And I don't mean a, a you know a, a drinking filtration. I'm talking about filtering just through maybe gravel and sand to take the dirt out of it and then can be used for bathing. And that is so critical. I mean, I think that people underestimate the importance of hygiene in a survival situation, especially one that's related to disease and illness. Every time you're weakened through not having water, being not as clean as you possibly could be, and not having food and nutrients, you become more susceptible to disease. Whether it's the disease that's killing everybody in a pandemic, or just disease in general. Diseases that normally don't kill people who are healthy, often kill people in a weakened state. You look at the, if you want to see flu death rates, Look at third world countries and see how many people die of a basic flu compared to how many people die of a basic flu in the United States. It's, it's a huge discrepancy. And it's about the fact that there's people living in places where they're malnourished at all times. So when they're attacked by a disease, their bodies are less able to fight that off. Understanding your local resources and having an assessment done in advance so that you know where to harvest them prevents you from weakening yourself. I also think it's really important that we think about the cultivation of wild crops, or what I call guerrilla gardening. And I know there's a million ways to look at guerrilla gardening, but when I say it, I'm generally talking about not growing a bunch of pansies in the middle of uh, an interstate for a beautification project, which I have no problem with that. If you want to do that, hey, that, that's all, all good and well. When I talk about guerrilla gardening, though, I'm talking about unconventional gardening in a way that's going to feed us in a situation where food is really critical and really important. Now, here's the good news about guerrilla gardening. You don't have to go out and buy a bunch of seeds uh, or even a lot of tools to get started with guerrilla gardening. You can probably go out on your foraging exercises where you go out and you find blackberry. Or you go out and you find lamb's quarter. Or you go out and you find some type of a high bush cranberry. You find something uh, that's a vitamin C uh, provider like sumac. And you find all of these plants that you become familiar with. And then all you have to do uh, to, to get started as a gorilla gardener, if you want to call that, is to start taking the approach that our, our native ancestors initially took, which was 
to improve the conditions for plants that are already growing in the wild. And this can be so simple. Let's say you find a blackberry patch. Well, what if you go on the downhill, you, you determine the slope, you go on the downhill side, and you basically build a debris dam. Any piece of rotten wood or bush or rock that you can find, you create a debris dam. And what I mean by that is you create a berm on the downhill uh, side. It's clo close to the blackberry uh, uh, bushes, but on the downhill side of them. Now, you go out and you gather as many leaves and things like that as you can, and sticks and twigs and coarse mulch. And then you come into this blackberry stand, and you go in there and you just fill, you just cover the ground two to four inches deep in, in natural mulch that you get from the area. Get it from multiple locations. Just like building cover in the military, you don't take everything from one place because the bare spot gives away the fact that there's something being concealed. So you take it from multiple locations, mulch the hell out of that area. Now, You go into that area, and when you grow, this is just specialized knowledge again, right? When you grow blackberry uh, at home, what you do is each year you trim out the third-year canes, right? What happens with blackberry generally is you get first-year canes come up, and they don't produce any fruit in their first year. The second year, they begin to grow again, and they produce fruit. After that, they stop fruiting. So you cut them out. And the other, the, the, the first year canes that came that year become the next second year canes. So you go through, if it's toward the end of the season, and all the, the canes that are fruited, you go prune those out like you were managing blackberries in a backyard. And you take all of that material that you pruned out, and what do you do with it? You cut some of it up and throw it down as coarse mulch, or you make it part of your debris dam. What kind of production is that blackberry plant going to give you going forward compared to the blackberries that have not been touched by a human hand? Our experience with doing that on our property in Arkansas was we doubled both the, the size of the individual berries and we doubled the, the total production in numbers of berries, which is fourfold more in volume and weight of blackberry. And that's all we did was debris dam, And we did a little bit of a, a kind of a depression creation, a dig out of the area before we mulched it as well. And by doing that, we ended up with greater production. That can be done with wild black cherry tree. That can be done with sumac trees. That can be done with land. That can be done with anything. So I take the specialized knowledge of how to deal with blackberry that includes the, the, the pruning of canes, and I evolve out of it a generalized knowledge that any plant that I find anywhere that's edible, that grows back year after year, that's perennial in nature and wild growing, if I simply improve its ability to harvest the rainfall that's available when it's already getting by with what it has, I improve its productivity. And now I can take somebody else's localized knowledge. So now I'm in a group and I'm away from my area. Or I haven't learned about a certain plant in my area. And a person that lives and knows that area says to me, this plant is edible. Well, now I take my generalized knowledge, I apply it with his localized knowledge, and we improve the productivity of that resource. Isn't it cool how things start to link together? If we'll just, cause see, when you start telling people things like, well, there's general, special, and localized knowledge, it's like, you know, okay, you're getting all kind of teachery on me. This isn't important. This is why these things are important. As soon as you understand concepts, the, the next thing the human mind does is look for interrelationships. And in a survival situation, being able to see the interrelationships 
is one of the most important things that you can do. And here's something I'm going to be talking about on my business podcast soon. And I've been asked by a lot of people, why do you always connect dots? Why do you always see opportunity? And it's because I don't do something I think a lot of people do. Most people in life, when they make a connection, they do it the way we do it with a jigsaw puzzle. I take tab B and I insert it into slot A and those two pieces fit into this hole together and they're part of the picture that way. And in a jigsaw puzzle, I obviously want to take the piece I just used up in the right corner, uh, upper right corner, and move it down to the lower left corner, right? It belongs up here. Unfortunately, people tend to think that way in survival situations, in business situations, and in day-to-day life. Once I connect two concepts together, those concepts are married together. They stay together. Uh, But it's not a puzzle. It's far more complex than a puzzle. Those two pieces you fit together don't have to be taken apart for them to be reused. And what I mean by that, let's give a concrete example. So I take something like water harvesting for wild crops. Right, So I build my debris dam, I use my thick layer of mulch, and okay, well that's for wild crops. No, it's for your backyard. You can do that with, with you know, you can do it to the permaculture 10th degree by swaling, or you can do it on miniature scales with your fruit tree in your backyard. Now, I can take the same concept that if I create a debris dam and a depression... If I now add to that, I can line it with something like plastic. It can be a rain catch for water that I can harvest for my consumption or other needs of water. Just because it fit together one way doesn't mean it doesn't fit together a lot of different ways. General knowledge. If you dig a hole and water's running downhill, it will be captured in the hole. Specialized knowledge. I can use this to capture water for wild crops. I can use it to capture water for cultivated crops. And I can use it to capture water for me to drink. I can do it on a large scale and create a small pond or dam impoundment. And unfortunately for most people, they become myopic once they learn a skill or they learn a concept and it becomes married to maybe one or two other concepts and that's what it does and it gets put together like a puzzle. What I'm saying is once you have a piece of general knowledge, determine how many different ways it can be used to increase localized and specialized capabilities. And if you do that, all of a sudden you start to have the one thing that's the most important thing in any survival situation, more options. The less options you have, the more critical each one becomes. If I only have one option for food and it fails, I starve. If I create ten options for food and five of them fail, fail, I still eat well. So I need to be cultivating wild crops. I need to be working in an environment where I am absolutely making sure that any edible animals uh, or fish or anything like that, I'm putting out traps and, and, and lines for and things like that. I need to be making sure that if I can grow my own food, I'm not doing that once the crisis starts. I'm doing that in advance. I need to be creating as many options to create a way to eat, a way to drink, etc. as possible. Every time I expand the number of options that I have, I expand my possibility of actually surviving. And let's talk about some of the dumbass things these people are doing at the colony again. And it just, because it, it, it makes it real, because you'll think, well, nobody would ever do this, but yet they're doing it. So they have some fishing gear, all right? They have a fishing pole, and, and I, I, they must have some tackle, because I've seen the guys using the fishing poles sometimes. And they have nets. 
Here's what they've done. They've casted the fishing pole in and sat around and held onto it for a while to wait to see if anything happened in two different spots. They've tried to turn the nets into a cast net, and they tried to turn the nets into a drag net. And they drug the net, and it didn't work, and they cast the net, and it didn't work, and nobody caught any fish on the fishing pole. Now, is it just me? Or would you take some of the fishing line and tie it to a tree or a loose limb, right, and create a limb line, put a hook on that sucker and a piece of that stinky pig on there with all these alligators and turtles swimming around in these, these trenches that are around their facility, toss that in there, and maybe do that 10 or 15 times up and down the bank, and just keep an eye on it and let that happen 24-7, 365, while it doesn't require your direct attention. Well, they have general knowledge. They're, they know that there's, and they have a little bit of local knowledge. They know there's fish. They can see them. They know that there's stuff in there that can be eaten. They've seen the turtles. They've seen the alligators. They know how a fishing pole works. They know how a hook works. And they know what bait is. They have every piece of the puzzle necessary, but yet fishing is done by one person with one rod and one line and one hook and only while the person stands there and fails. And no other options have been tried. Now, I don't want to be too hard on these people, but it's just an excellent example right now to point out exactly what I'm talking about. You have all the puzzle pieces, but mentally they've all been allocated. And no one wants to reallocate. No one wants to look at this and go, how can we do this differently? Now, maybe they'll figure this out. Right? They're building a boar spear. Here's another thing. They got the architect, uh, not the architect, inventor, artist guy, build a forge. Cool looking forge. He made a machete, and now he's working on spears, so they're going to go spear a boar. Now, none of these people are hunters. What are their odds of spearing a boar? Seriously. Anybody that's ever hunted wild hogs? These creatures are not stupid. Hunting, and I'm not talking about a preserve hunt. These are wild hogs, man. These are feral, right, running around in the woods. They're, they're a tough game animal to hunt with a good bow when you know what you're doing. There's plenty of people that go out and hunt them, often with rifles and dogs, and come home empty-handed. Sure, they kill a lot of them, too, but there's a lot of days they don't get any. Now, those are people that know how to hunt, that know their prey. Now, these guys are going to build some spears, and once they have a spear, they think they're going to go spear a boar. And I'm almost ready, if they do spear one, I'm almost ready to call bullshit on it, that it was set up. I really am. Because I don't see these people having the knowledge and capability to pull this off. What should they be doing? They should be using the cordage that's in the area, because there's tons of cordage in the form of electrical wiring. There's tons of wood, right? There's tons of material to create a trap, a basic boar trap. Now, you might not know what a boar trap looks like, but it's basically a big box, and it doesn't have to be a box. It can literally be a makeshift fence with a doorway in and something to the back of it with bait. And when the hogs go to the back, they trip, trip a door and the door falls down. Okay? That's a basic hog trap used all over the place. A thousand variations, but they all work basically the same way. When they're done properly, they can be quite large, and a lot of times people will come back to their trap, and they don't find a boar. They'll find a mother and six piglets. We, you know, short term, hey, suckling pig. Long term, we have an ability to start taking the feral hog back into domestication with piglets at this point. All depends on the situation. But the big point is, instead of running around for days and days and days burning valuable calories, trying to get one boar that you're lucky if you pull off if you know what you're doing, the trapper can trap dozens of hogs 
and the trap works while you sleep. This is another example of specialized knowledge not being had and not being utilized and harnessed against local. Localized knowledge, the hogs are in the area. General knowledge, pork is edible. Good protein source. Additional resources. They already figured out how to take the rotten pigs that they couldn't eat, make biodiesel. Well, if they were trapping boar, they could continue to use the surplus fat from their boars, nowhere near as much as the domestic hog, but some's there to make more biodiesel to run things at least enough to keep some electricity going. Fat could also be used to create candles for lighting. Could be used as a lubricant. It's a tremendous resource. The bones have have a, a use. There's so much that could be done with that, but they don't have the knowledge to put it all together with, and be able to go out there and just say, "Hey, let's not run around like idiots with a sharp stick. Let's create a trap." And they should be trapping. And uh, I mean, the other thing is, there's two there's two main types of quarry that you're going to trap: small and large, to make it as simple as possible. There are probably rats running all over the place around that place. There's definitely squirrels. There's they're they're in Louisiana. There's probably a bunch of those things. What do you call them? Uh, oh God, I can't think of what they're called now. They're uh, a great big rodent-looking thing that swims around. Nutria. There's probably millions of those things around if they knew where to look for them. There's quite a bit of meat on one of them. Uh, you know, there's birds. There's all types of things that could be trapped and harnessed. But no one's taken the approach of trapping yet. That's why I think it's one of the most important skills that you can master. It is, uh, it's up there with shelter creation and fire building. Is the three big wilderness skills that apply to any urban or suburban survival breakdown situation as well. If you can trap, if you can make fire and you can build shelter, uh, and you can also provide yourself with a reasonable amount of security, you're going to figure out the rest. Because you're going to find water. Your belly and your desire for it's going to make you find it. You know, unless you're dropped off in the middle of the desert where there isn't any. I mean, there, there's, you know, in the eastern United States anyway, there's plenty of water if you know where to look. And even in some pretty harsh environments, Brian Black and I were just out at, uh, Big Bend and we could find water in Big Bend. And I don't mean in the, 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 the center of it where it's pretty lush and green and there's some draws. We were out in like the most desolate parts of it we could find, the most barren parts that we could find. And we were still able in some washes to locate some spots that were basically places where when it rained, water had collected and with a little bit of digging you could get some water. So water's there. It's an important skill to know. But those are the things that when it comes to when we think of We think of people that, that are on the shows like Survivor Man, you know, uh, you know, Les Stroud, Bear Grylls, now Dave Canterbury and uh, Cody Lundeen. The the skill of the trapper, uh, the skill of shelter creation, the skill of fire making, those are just so valuable. And then applying a certain level of knowledge where you know what's around you and you know what's available. I also think one of the big things that people leave out of their localized assessment is the location and distance to travel. It's one thing to say, well, I know where there's all kinds of stuff to eat around my house, and well, how long does it take you to get there? Well, about 10 minutes is close. 10 minutes how? By car? How far a walk is that? How long are you vulnerable to travel that same 10 minutes that turns into an hour? Without a car, because the cars aren't running, or because running a car becomes a liability, or because you can't afford to in a certain situation... How much of it can you bring back with you? What are secondary means of transportation you could be utilizing, like, let's say, a bicycle? Bicycles are great, folks, but you know what I learned as a kid? You can only carry so much on a bicycle. I used to, before I got a car, a, a car 
Everywhere I went, a bicycle was my method of transportation, especially fishing. And without a you know a backpack and a few rods across the handlebars, and there wasn't much else you could carry. Maybe it's a good idea to think about having some type of a towable behind a bicycle, and where that towable can and cannot go. And in many situations, you'll find out that a bicycle doesn't even uh, really get used as a transportation, as as a method of uh, mobility for an object. In other words, you may not be able to ride the bicycle, but you may be able to get off and push and use it as some sort of a dolly. And if you're hauling something behind it, that's even more effective. Sometimes you just can't pedal up a hill, especially carrying a heavy load. You can get off and you and maybe one other person can push. It's important that we know the lay of the land, where the resources are around us, how long it takes to get there. Yes, by car. Yes, by foot. Yes, by bike. If you're lucky and you own livestock like horses on horseback, motorcycle, I don't care what it is. Every method of transportation you have to get there. You also need to determine are there more expedient routes when you're on foot than in a car. And are, are there more expedient routes that you maybe will examine but not use because you take you across property that you don't own? But in a survival situation, the hell with not owning the property, you're going to use that route maybe covertly. All of these things need to be assessed. I think you need to have a damn good map of your local area. Really understand the area in about a 10-mile radius around where you live. Really understand that area. That's an area that can be reconned even by foot on an overnight patrol if it's necessary. Now, you might think that Jack's going a little foil hat today. A little bit out there. Like I always say, we do prepare for the most likely disaster scenarios first. But I believe it is arrogant to believe that we might never need these skills. It is arrogant to believe that we can never have a situation where a disease can bring this country and this world to its knees. Because just like the bad guys I talked about yesterday that would be attacking a, a, a settlement, a disease needs one good day for us all to have a very bad day. Viruses mutate every time a next generation comes around. And for many of them, that's about 48 hours. Millions of mutations upon mutations upon mutations happen in a given year. A generation for a virus compared to a generation for a human is like that. And it just takes the one time that the mutation comes out the right way and fits with our bodies the wrong way for us and the right way for the virus... And we have full-on global pandemic. It is, to me, the most credible global threat that's out there today. It's the one that is a hell of a lot more likely than the New World Order sending helicopters after you. That is the foil hat world. I think it's more damaging than economic collapse. I think that this nation, under economic collapse, would largely pull together. That we can handle the Great Depression in worse here. We can handle an Argentina-like situation. We can handle a Russian Federation-like situation. We can get through it. We can unite. We will pull together in those situations. It would take the complete, total desolation of the economy. Zero confidence left in the dollar. Total, total breakdown. And I still think it would take a other 
a vent to kind of land on top of it, you know, uh, a, a mild pandemic that normally wouldn't be bad enough, but during that situation, or some uh, nation would uh, use the opportunity to attack us uh, with, with terrorism or something like that. Even with an economic collapse, I don't think we would ever have that total breakdown without some other mitigating factor. But disease? Yeah. What are the odds that a giant asteroid ever hits this planet and wipes out 70% of the civilization, puts us into nuclear winter, and we have small bands roaming around trying to put something back together? A million to one. Probably a billion to one. But we've been around for six billion years, folks. And it has happened before. That tells you it could happen again. What are the odds that someday a solar storm might wipe out our electrical grid in its entirety, or the majority of it? I hate to tell you this, fair to good. Now, what are the odds it will happen tomorrow? Very low. But there are, and the, here's the big thing. The thing that will probably push civilization to the brink will probably not be any of the things that we've ever talked about. It will probably be a threat that we haven't identified yet. To think that we know every threat to our existence, at least in a general sense, again, I think that's arrogant. I want to finish up today with, you know, if you're ever in a situation like this, some of the things you need to think about. One is going to, the next two are going to seem almost completely counter to each other, but they're really not. First one is keeping a low profile. If you have the ability to survive and thrive while all hell's going loose around you, you don't want that to be obvious. You want to look just as miserable as everybody else out there. And even within a group, you don't want to be the one always running your mouth in a group and always alienating people in a group. So even if you've banded together with other people, the person that always tries to assert their will and doesn't keep kind of a lower profile, contribute, yes, uh, both uh, you know with, with leadership and with activity, yes. But the person that tries to be so domineering is often the person that gets ostracized and resented. So both within a group and with the people around you, you want to keep a low profile in a disaster, and you want to keep a low profile pre-disaster. I talk a lot about reaching out, forming community, not being ashamed of who you are and what you are, but I'm also never said, hey, why don't you go advertise to all your neighbors you have six months worth of food? I, I think that would be a really bad idea, and I don't think you should do that. So you need to keep some level of a low profile. But the other thing you do need to realize is you may need to be a leader even if you've never wanted to be. You may be in a situation someday, the only person with the general localized and specialized knowledge capable of being a leader. You may not even be a permanent leader, but you may have to be a leader for a time. And it's it, it's something that if you're not willing to do... You, you may very well not only cost yourself your own survival, but those around you who could have survived. And I'm not talking about glorious leadership. There's a saying that leaders are not the first to strive, or those leaders are not the, those who strive to be first, but those who are the first to strive. And, and that's the kind of servant leadership that I'm talking about. When you see something and you know how to fix it, it's incumbent upon you to step up and make it happen and help other people fix it and help other people learn. The biggest skill of a leader is not getting people to do what you want. It's not getting people to comply with your, your desires. It's not even really organizing people. Those are all leadership skills, and they're all part of leadership. But the most important skill of a leader is teaching. When you teach people, you become a leader to them. When you mentor somebody, that very mentorship 
puts you in a, a place of leadership. And mentorship is often, and teaching is often a two-way street. And then you get the most powerful form of leadership where people lead when their expertise are required. And people yield when they know the other person has more expertise. We only get that when we begin to really know ourselves and know each other. And that type of leadership, it seems difficult to master. I mean, you could probably write a book on this type of leadership in of itself. But the reality is it, it's not difficult to master. As soon as human beings start to function in that tribal format, we start to assess each other's skills. And without with a judgmental, but with an optimism. What do you know? What can you tell me? What can you teach me? How can I help you? What are you good at? What am I good at? How can we put those skills together? As soon as people start to think that way and communicate that way, that leadership within the group emerges. And there's generally people that have a certain aptitude for leadership. And those people become, you know, kind of the, the group leader or, or one of the leaders within a group. These are the people that, in a job, right, in a mundane, everyday job, where everybody just, you know, slubs through work, and this guy is like, you know, way down on the totem pole, and there's, you know, two levels of supervision over him, and then there's a company, you know, upper level management, but everybody in the group, including people that, 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 that you know, technically are in charge of this guy, they follow him, or they follow her. That what he says, his opinions, carry more weight. It's, it's the leader within the group. And in these stressful situations, because there's no hierarchy, there's no, there's no politics, there's no company policy, that person generally rises to the occasion, even when they don't want to. The other, you see, people so need leadership that when they see it, it's magnetic for them and it's attractive for them. And they generally assign that person leadership whether they, they really want to be in charge or not. And those are usually your best leaders. That person that is going to put your needs before their own, and but they're going to do it from a position of strength. That person that's going to be willing to make the hard decisions, that person that's going to be willing to say, look, I know we all disagree about this, but we've got to make a decision. This is our decision, and this is our exit strategy if it doesn't work out. I mean, that's one of the big things that I see missing from so many people uh, in their survival planning, whether it's a reality TV show or a real-world survival scenario. People make commitments without exit strategies. You know, everybody jumped on the, the, the government for not having an exit strategy for Iraq, not having an ex exit strategy for Afghanistan. Not that they're wrong for that, but what about an exit strategy for you? What about you went out and tried trapping and th that didn't work? What's your exit strategy? What's your other option? What about, hey, we're going to go over there to get water and you can't get through. What's your, and you're halfway there and stuck in between. What's your exit strategy? When do you pull out? Leadership is about helping establish those things because most people don't think that way. And then the last thing I want to talk about is, and this is something that really does come directly from this, uh, this, this new show, The Colony, is, uh, and you need to understand their strength in numbers. There's a couple newcomers that came into the show last night, and they were worried, we have more mouths to feed. These people have a week's worth of food on them, and they don't even know it yet. They didn't say, you know, they, when they kind of let them into their area, well, what are you bringing to the table? You know? They, they're, they're, they're trying to keep them as, like, in and out at the same time. you got your own house, we have our own house, you guys don't live with us, and... If these people can be trusted, if they can be interviewed, if their skills can be assessed, if they can be part of that group, they should be integrated into the group. 
It should be an all-for-one and one-for-all type scenario because there's strength in numbers. They know that there's people out there that want to attack them. And there is a point where if you try to have, you know, too many people into a group, that there's too many people that basically want to sit on the handlebars and ride while somebody else pedals. And they become mouths to feed. But building a group to a sizable number that can defend what it has and magnify the effects of other members. Because now, remember we talked about the transfer of knowledge. When I bring somebody with new specialized knowledge and new general knowledge and new local knowledge into my group, if I have a system in place that allows for knowledge transfer, I magnify the capabilities of the group not just because we have two new people, but because many of their skills and their knowledge sets are transferred using a system that I've put in place to my other members of the group. I'm not big on setting up these survival groups with these bug out where everybody owns a piece of the land. And, and the reason I'm not for that is because it causes too much trouble in peacetime. But if the gloves are off, if society is melting down, and if you find people that can be trusted, and there has to be a vetting process determining that, But if you can find that, and if they bring something to the table, if they're not a useless bag of skin, and you're going to interact with them, either bring them in fully and merge the two worlds together in an agreeable situation, run in a republic, right, a republic fashion, or send them on their way. Don't have them loosely associated. They need to have their own area the hell away from me if they're not part of our group during a scenario like this. It's, it's the only way it's going to work or people will start to take from each other and people will distrust each other. The only way you can have trust is to fully trust. Now you trust but verify, as Reagan used to say, right? Trust but verify. But that needs to be there, and there is strength in numbers. And if you ever find yourself at this level of a situation, it does make sense to form a group from the people that become available in the situation. And basing that on people that you're already friends with and family with is a great idea. And having some forethought and planning, when I say I'm against the group scenario, I'm never against the organization of the group. What I'm against is five families going in together on 100 acres to build a bug out location because what ends up happening is everybody fights with each other because nobody feels that the other person wants to do it their way. And it creates misery, and because the property is co-owned, you have a problem. Everything else with pre-group planning, I'm totally for, and it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, because it allows you to rally that group together, and it allows you to have a lot of the work done in advance of it being needed. And that can be for anything from a small localized disaster and getting yourselves out of the area of operations to a major uh, large-scale breakdown. That group has value. But the big thing I want you to take away from today is how important it is that you begin to assess what's available in your area. I want you to identify edible food sources in your area. I want you to identify places that can be used as makeshift shelter if you were caught away from home during a disaster. I want you to identify, I want you to intimately know a 10 mile sphere around your area. And I want you to know how to get the hell out. That is so important. There could be a time when bugging out is the only option. When, in what, you know, there's the golden rule for bug outs as far as I'm concerned. I bug out when my odds of survival are increased by bugging out. Not because I think it's a good idea, but hey, you know what? There's a credible threat of a nuclear bomb in downtown Dallas. I'm getting the hell out of here. Right? 
I'm getting the hell out. There are localized riots in Fort Worth, in downtown Fort Worth, that are spreading into the suburbs. I'm getting the hell out of here. You know, there's a flu pandemic that's starting to kill people in large numbers. We're isolating ourselves. We're going out to our bug out. We have a prepared location, so we have a place to go. That may not be the right choice for you, because you may not have a place to go. But you do not have to know how you're going to get out. Different routes, different ways, different places. Because even if you don't have a prepared place, there could still come a day where you got to go. But most of us are going to be better off to stay put. And the way we stay put is to understand intimately the resources that are around us before we need them. And to practice and develop general, local, and specialized sources of knowledge. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another uh, episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.